All you reality TV lovers, we've got an extra special episode of The Girls Uninterrupted with our very own Aisha Scott from the latest season of Below Deck Mediterranean, all thanks to Hey You, the best of reality TV. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Emil. Oh, look at that. It's Emil's in a monologue. How's it going? Haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, I know. You don't really... Listen to me much these days, do you? How's Fun Fact Friday going, by the way? It's gone, it's gone fine. Why are you here? Well, I'm here because you're hosting the show solo today, because Emmo and Jono are both incapacitated, and I wanted to give you a wee word of advice. Okay, what's that? Do you remember that time when you were giving a speech at high school and you forgot what you were saying and you just stood there in front of everybody, completely silent, for like a minute, and then the principal took pity on you and escorted you off stage. Yeah? Don't do that. Okay. Kia ora, this is Newsable. I'm Emil. And this is What's Worth Talking About. Chaos in Australia with multinational consultancy PwC caught up in a massive tax scandal. So what does this tell us about the state of affairs here in Aotearoa? A professor of philosophy explains why sports fans are also amateur conspiracy theorists. The US economy's probably going to get a band-aid, but how long can the world's richest nation keep living beyond its means in a good old-fashioned stoush over a lottery ticket? All that's coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. Well, we've got a wild story developing over the Tasman, as they say. The Australian head of global accounting firm PwC has resigned over a scandal that involves leaking confidential government tax plans. Nine other partners at the firm have also been told to step down pending an investigation. This is a really interesting story, and it's quite pertinent to us in New Zealand, actually, given the focus recently on how much the public sector relies on private contractors and consultants such as PwC Offer. Bernard Hickey is a journalist specialising in business and economics. He runs The Kaka, and he is with us now. Kia ora. Kia ora. Please explain in normal person language what is happening here. Well, this is a case of the fox being invited into the hen house by the head of the chooks and being asked to be a vegan <laughs> fox, and it's surprising that the fox decided he couldn't resist and went straight for the chooks. So what we're talking about here is the Australian government asking PwC for advice on how to set up its tax system to better gather tax from international companies. Just like here, um, there are a big four accounting uh, groups that include PwC. And so what we've uh, got here is the Australian government finding, surprisingly, that when it asked this big tax consulting firm to advise on how to find the best way to tax international companies, that this information was passed on to the international companies. What has PwC been accused of doing wrong? Like, if it's working for the Australian government 
and the Australian government is doing tax changes. And PwC is also working for private companies who are affected by these tax changes. Is there something forbidding them from sharing this information with these people? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I I don't think there's any sort of um, obvious case of the law being broken in in the sense of things being stolen. But in this case, the expectation would have been that the tax advisors would not have been the same people as the ones giving advice to the international companies. And there would have been some sort of expectation, at least, of a Chinese wall between advisors or the partners who uh, were advising the big international companies and the advisors who were advising the Australian government. And as we've discovered in this case, there wasn't much wall at all. There was an awful lot of forwarding on. How serious are these accusations and how damaging is this for PwC's both local and international reputation? It's obviously incredibly damaging for PwC Australia and its relationship with the government. And it looks like the Australian government has essentially frozen PwC out of new business for the federal government. But of course, Australia is a big place and there's lots of state governments as well and very big companies who would be shocked to see what's going on here. Uh, Although you do have to wonder, when the government asks a bunch of consultants in to do some work. And it's fairly clear you're asking those consultants to help you find ways to tax big companies, which you, if you don't guess, you at least um, should have asked if they were also fighting these other companies. Yes, it's always nice that uh, people don't talk to their fellow partners and employees about things, but you sort of have to think the Australian government, well... That'll learn ya. <laughs> Developing tax policy, that seems like a pretty core thing for a government to be able to do by itself. That's right. And this is now something that not only New Zealand's thinking about, but all around the world, people are looking at how governments have effectively outsourced a lot of their strategy work, a lot of their organisational change work to people who are conflicted. Because remember, the big four are giving advice to lots of big companies, both locally and internationally. And if you're the government and you're asking for advice on you know, how to tax or how to regulate or how to change the rules in some way that affects lots of companies, it's almost inevitable there's going to be conflict. Bernard Hickey from the Kaka, thank you very much for your time and expertise. Really appreciate it. Ka kite. So conspiracy theories have gotten a bit of a hard time lately, and it's probably a good thing for a bunch of reasons. But one of the greatest conspiracies of all has arguably never been stronger, which is, of course, the theory that if you support a sports team, the referees are all against you. They cannot allow you to feel joy, and they are willing to do anything in their power to stop you being happy. Auckland University philosophy professor Tim Deere was recently moved to write about this phenomenon of refereeing bias and why fans feel so strongly about it. And he's with me now to chat about it. Kia ora. Kia ora, Emil. Tim, you got some balls writing this piece considering you're a blues fan. Well, of course, being a blues fan explains why I wrote it, because <laughs> I'm, I'm motivated by a deep sense that the blues are always on the wrong side of refereeing decisions. <laughs> What do you think, Tim? Does refereeing bias exist in professional or high-level sport? 
Absolutely. It's it's completely unavoidable, I think. So the best we can do is um, try and come up with structures which minimize it, which um, make sure it doesn't make a big difference or to an important play. But the worst thing we can do, I think, is deny that it exists because then we don't make any effort to combat it. Okay, but when we talk about buyers, the things that spring to mind for me are sort of mafia types handing cash and suitcases to shadowy figures underneath bridges. We're not really talking about that style of organised crime bias, are we? No, that's that's no doubt pretty rare. And, And actually, you know, in recent history... The main cases of that have been players rather than referees taking taking payments to fix games. So the claim that prompted all of this, the chap saying the Australian referees were cheating, I think that's almost certainly unwarranted. And you can see why he walked back, not just because they threatened to sue him. But the, the problem of bias is not cheating. It's that all humans are predisposed to reason badly about in all sorts of contexts and many of those those reasoning errors lead us to be biased. And it's understandable to an extent too, right? Like, I mean, even focusing on the Warriors example, most of the NRL's teams are Australian. Most of the referees in the NRL are Australian. So it's very much feasible that the refs are, to some degree, subconsciously biased against the non-Australian team. Would you agree? Well, so I'm not so sure about that. I think the problem is more likely to be that the Warriors have been hopeless for so long that the referees don't expect them to do well. And so it's not really that they've got it in for the New Zealand team. And so I know people said, you know, we'd love the Warriors to win. The difficulty is rather that once teams get reputations for blowing it, then referees have expectations that they'll blow it. Mm -hmm. And those expectations lead people to see things differently. So the case I gave in the little article was you prime experts to look at fingerprints in one case, you tell them, look, we sort of expect this to be a match. And and a set of experts who are working calmly in their laboratory say, oh, yes, it's a match. Five years later, you send them the same prints, but prime them to think they don't match. Say, you know, we think this is probably a case of mistaken identity. Mm. And that expectation leads them to actually see the data in front of them differently. And that that's what I think is going on here. Well, Tim, from a Highlanders fan to a Blues fan, I'm glad that we can unite in our uh, disdain for the Canterbury Crusaders, and I'll look forward to chatting to you again soon. Thanks so much for your time. Cheers. Thank you. Tim Deere wrote about Vice and the conversation. You should check out that piece. But I would like to hear more of your stories, your great sporting injustices. Email them to us, newsable at stuff.co.nz, or get in touch on the Instagram or the TikTok. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. Well, the US is running down to the wire to stop the country running out of money to pay its debts. The President Joe Biden's optimistic he's made a deal with the Republicans to temporarily suspend what is known as the debt ceiling, but a deal must get through Congress before June the 5th. 
So to talk us through what's going on here, we're joined by Infometrics Chief Executive Brad Olson. Kia ora to you. Kia ora. How close is this all getting, Brad? Like, is it as touch and go as it kind of seems from the outside? It certainly feels pretty touch and go. I mean, the only good news in a sense that's come through uh, was that the risk originally, uh, we heard from the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who said, look, the 1st of June is is sort of D-Day. It all needs to be locked up by then. Uh, They came back, I think, last week and said, actually, we've got till the 5th. So there's a little bit more wriggle room. Of course, the US um, on Monday has a public holiday. uh, So, you know, they've already sort of a, a day behind. Nothing much happens on those sort of days. They are becoming close because again remember this doesn't just happen uh, very quickly you don't just walk into the house vote on in five minutes and out you go first it's got to go through a committee some of those much more conservative republicans on that committee that might try and hold it up a bit more got to get it through the house you got to get it through the senate and then it goes to the president for final sign-off so there are a few steps in the process that i think certainly makes um, everyone in the markets pretty cautious about things yes there is a deal on the table but remember there's 435 votes uh, that come through in the House. There's 100 votes in the Senate. You need half of both of them. And there's people on both sides of the divide that aren't happy with the deal. So I certainly don't think anyone's counting their chickens until all those votes are in and the ink is dried from the president's pen. But given the alternative to this is the US defaulting on its debt, surely some deal has got to happen here. There's got to be some element of posturing, surely. Well, you certainly think so. But gosh, how how long do you leave it? I mean, this is brinkmanship right until the last moment. It is interesting. I've been talking to a few colleagues a bit older than me that have seen this before. And I said, you know, how, how worried were people in those previous events? And I think over time, everyone has become almost less worried because they always do this. They take it right to the edge and then they seem to solve it. And I do think they'll solve it again this time because the alternative is is pretty catastrophic. You know, it would have huge implications for interest rates, for economic activity and the like. But I think, again, the question is, you know, you've got some Democrats who are saying, we don't think that some of the cuts that have been provided uh, should have been in there. I'm not going to vote for it. You've got some much more hardcore Republicans saying, nope, it doesn't go far enough. We should be slashing and burning the budget. So unlike in previous times where it's sort of been you get all of the Democrats or all of the Republicans to vote for something, this time around it feels like it might be a little bit more in the middle of the park. I guess the longer term issue is it's only been pushed out till January 2025. Mm. You talked about the brinkmanship earlier there, and I guess that is an element of this, the politics of it, and sort of wringing blood from a stone, getting things right to the wire to extract some promises or um, policy wins that you might not have gotten. And there are some pretty dodgy aspects being agreed to here, are there? Yeah, there do seem to be. I mean, on one side, you've had uh, the Democrats that have had to allow a little bit of a pullback in some of the social supports that are otherwise being provided uh, to Americans. The Republicans wanted a lot more, but they seem to have settled on some more job requirements or some job checks and similar on some programs. At the same time, look, the the levels of debt that you've got in the US are are pretty eye-watering. $31.4 $31.4 trillion. Their debt to GDP is well over 100%. Here in New Zealand, we're sort of more at 30 So it makes me a bit more comfortable about how our uh, government fiscal position has, is here in New Zealand because, man, those guys in the US, they've, they've gone pretty pretty big. Interesting stuff. Brad Olson from Infometrics, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. This week on The Girls Uninterrupted. I'm not having a go. I'm just saying. No, you can. You can. But I would never put them on my face. It is a Crocs phone. It's 100% a Crocs phone. And you are the biggest against Crocs. I actually really like it. I just think that you need to now say Crocs are cool. 
No, I don't. No, no. <laughs> it's giving hypocrisy. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. The Girls Uninterrupted is proudly brought to you by our mates at Unichem and Life Pharmacy. We have a special treat for you newsable listeners today, uh, and that is producer Philippe, who is on the line. Ding, ding, ding. Hello. Hello, Emile. Making her newsable debut. Philippa is here because she read a funny story and she wanted to come on and uh, tell us about it. This story comes from the US. Of course it does. It's a Powerball from California. Somebody won a record-breaking $2 billion. Now, they have some sort of deal that when you win this amount of money, presume you can take it over time or you take it immediately. So the guy who won it took almost a billion dollars immediately. But just as he was celebrating and having a good time, watch it arrive at his door. But a summons. A summons? Yes, the American way. (laughs) Absolutely. From a man who alleges the ticket was stolen from him. Ah. But it's not quite straightforwardly one person stealing one ticket. Apparently the ticket was stolen by a man named Reggie. But the man who bought the court case is not Reggie, it's another man altogether. And now he has taken absolutely everybody who moves to court, including the California uh, Lottery Authority, who are adamant that they did all the authentication properly. But the man taking the court case says, you go back and I want to see the CCT footage of where the man who won says he bought the ticket. This is like the worst Agatha Christie novel ever. I know. You, can you believe that the details of the court case don't even connect the man who says it was stolen from, the Reggie, and the guy who says he owns the ticket. So how it even got to court is a bit of a mystery. Absolute wilderness. My favourite genres of uh, lottery stashes, and there are many genres of lottery stash stories, are the ones where there's like a work syndicate who all pull money and then they buy a ticket every week and one person buys the ticket and then they buy the winning ticket and they abscond with the cash. And I was thinking while you were telling that story, Philippa, that we should start up a work lottery syndicate. What do you reckon? Well, it would be nice. Yeah. It's always dangerous. And maybe I'll hold the ticket a meal. <laughs> <laughs> That's usable for today. I am Emil Donovan. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favourite podcast player and leave us a rating and a review. It helps other listeners to discover the show and we would just really appreciate it. You can also follow us on social media to stay up to date on new episodes and behind-the-scenes content and all things newsable, except not Emil's in a monologue. We are on Insta and TikTok. Just search up at NewsableNZ. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you tomorrow. Have a good one. If you liked listening to this pod, help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. It appeared that a vehicle may have gone over the 80-metre cliff into the sea. There have been no bodies found, despite considerable debris being washed ashore. Nine years ago... A man named John Beckenridge abducted his stepson, Mike Zhao Beckenridge. Soon afterwards, they vanished. Now, a new investigation is trying to find out what happened to them. This is The Lost Boy. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.